Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now, kids uh, and youth, you can answer this as well. What would you say are like the top three Bible stories that you studied in kids' ministry? Okay, what are the top three Bible lessons that you hear about all the time if you went to Sunday school, kids' church, vacation Bible school? Like, raise your hand if you can think of one of those top three Bible stories. Jacob. David and Goliath. That's actually the one I was thinking of, okay? Two two more. Chloe, did you have one? Adam and Eve. Okay, good, good. One more? Daniel and the lion's den. Okay, right. So my kids in their, you know, I think they inherited my snarky, sarcastic humor kind of thing. So they'll they will at times whine about some of these top three or top five Bible stories that it just seems like there's some of those stories in the Bible that really work well for kids' ministry. Like, you know, in Ephesians, the, the armor of God, you can make the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith, and you can, you can wear those garments. And so kids' ministry loves that passage in Ephesians, right? Or Noah's, Noah's Ark, that's a great story, right? David and Goliath, Daniel and the lion's den. Some of those key stories that you come back to time and again. Kids, you are going to be happy to know that David and Goliath is not until next week. So today, we're not doing David and Goliath. That's in chapter 17. You're actually going to hear the story right before David and Goliath. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 16. We've been working through the book of 1 Samuel as a congregation uh, for the last month, month and a half. And so we're up to chapter 16. We're going to meet a young man named David. This is before the whole Goliath incident. And so we're going to find out some things about David that God sees in him, and it's going to challenge us to ask a couple questions. Number one, who has God created me to be? What does God see when he looks at me? And hopefully you have asked that question, and you've looked in the mirror, and and you've asked those big questions of life. Why am I here? What's the purpose? What's the mission? How has God wired me? And I think we're going to find some answers to where we go to find the answer to that question as we go to the story of David being chosen by God. And then number two, another, another big question that's answered here in this chapter is once you know who you are in God, who God has created you to be, what do you do about that? What's your mission? So not only who are you, your identity, but also your purpose and your mission. How has God wired you? What has he created you for? So I'll just, I'll just start by asking, raise your hand if you would like to know what God's will is for your life. Is there anybody besides me? Okay, good. Yeah, some people have two hands up. Mike back there, Norm, all right. Excellent. Well, then we're all going to be uh, open to God's word today as we come to him and say, God, speak to us about who we are, how you've gifted us, what you've created us to do and who you've created us to be. So it starts out here in verse 16. Samuel is the prophet of God that God had chosen to anoint that new king of Israel, David. Who was the king before David? Saul, right. And we've seen Saul, Saul's decline as he has moved toward disobedience, as he's moved toward thinking about himself and not God. And he is, he's failed in many ways as a king, and so God has rejected him. And so in, in chapter 16, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? We just saw at the end of chapter 15, that was where Samuel was left. It said, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And so God has now shown up to Samuel saying, hey, Samuel, put a smile on. 
Move on. I have rejected Saul. How long are you going to continue to grieve over Saul? And then God says, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So we're, we're getting a little glimpse here in this first verse into Samuel's heart, into how Samuel looks at the people around him, into how Samuel judges the people that he meets, and it's mostly based on external features, right? Have you ever heard the phrase, don't judge a book, book by its cover? And what that means is you, you need to look inside the book to find out the contents. And that's a warning that God is going to bring a little bit later in our story as now Samuel does go to Jesse's house. He begins to meet these sons, these eight sons of Jesse. The first one comes out. He's the firstborn. He's, he's big, good-looking, handsome. His name's Eliab. Samuel takes one look at him. Oh, this, this must be the Lord's anointed. And God's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're judging a book by its cover. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the contents. God looks at the heart. And we're seeing a little bit of that now in the, in the first verse where even though God has rejected Saul, Samuel continues to grieve over Saul. And God's saying, how long, Samuel? How long are you going to be grieving over the one that I have rejected? And so there's this tendency in Samuel and maybe in some of us today as well to follow our gut instinct rather than to listen carefully to the voice of God, rather than to yield to the leading of God's Holy Spirit, rather than to listen to the direct speech of God, right? God reveals himself through his word. And there's a lot of people today that would go for their gut instinct rather than what God's word says, And Samuel was prone to those same tendencies, right? God had directly said to him, I reject Saul, and yet Samuel's gut instinct is to grieve over that decision. And God confronts that. Really, the challenge for us is that we should rejoice over the things that please the heart of God and grieve over the things that grieve the heart of God. So when God looks at a person who is destitute and trapped in sin, and like Jesus, he looked at the multitudes who were like sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion on them, those are the things that should grieve our heart. But when God looks in a way that he rejoices, he's pleased, then our hearts should rejoice as well. And I don't think that God was looking at the condition of Saul's future, his life, and rejoicing over that, and yet he had made a decision. And really the challenge to Samuel and to each of us is get on board with God's purposes, get on board with God's kingdom purposes, get the heart of God beating within each of us. What about that word that was in there, that big multi-syllable word about Jesse? It said Jesse the Bethlehemite. Is there any part of that word that sounds vaguely familiar to you? Maybe the first part, the Bethlehem part, anybody? Anybody clicking on that? Okay. We may hear that in a couple months coming up on the Christmas season. Do you know anyone else from Bethlehem? Okay, a baby born in a manger whose birth we celebrate at Christmas time, the Savior of the world. We got done singing a lot of songs about him. The reason we are here today, the way, the truth, and the life, his name is Jesus Christ. And he also was from Bethlehem. If you, if you go to the Christmas story, one example would be Luke chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. 
um, sorry, I, I, I skipped ahead there. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And that was because he was of the house and lineage of David. And so we're going to see that this covenant promise that God ends up making to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is fulfilled in Jesus. God looks at this David that we're just meeting, David from Bethlehem, and he promises him in 2 Samuel 7, there's going to come a king from among your descendants, and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And then we're going to meet that Bethlehemite in the New Testament, Jesus of Nazareth, who's born there in Bethlehem, who is the one who's of the house of David. He's from that city of David. He is that Davidic king whose kingdom never ends, and that's who we worship today. That's who we bow our knee to in allegiance. Today, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, today you're a part of that kingdom, and you're saying you are the king. You're the king of every aspect of my life, of our world. You're the one that all of history is pointing to. You're the one whose return we're waiting for. And we're seeing a a glimpse here back in the Old Testament of those seeds that are planted pointing forward to Jesus. So Jesse of Bethlehem, that's where God is sending Samuel to anoint the next king. One other thing that I notice here and and again in verse 3, notice that God says, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have provided for whom? For myself a king among his sons. You know, I, it, that kind of caught me by surprise this week as I was thinking, you know, okay, and, and I will provide from among the sons of Jesse the Bethlehemite a king for the nation of Israel. That's not what it says, though. God says, I will provide for myself a king from among the people. What is David's real mission? Is it to be the king of the nation of Israel? Well, I see here that as God chooses and anoints David, David's whole purpose as a king is to glorify the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is a king for God's glory. This is a king for God's purposes. And whatever vocation you happen to have, you are in that position in life for the glory of God. You know, he looks around the room today and he says, I need an IT professional for my glory. I need an owner for my glory. I need a manager for my glory. I need an accountant for my glory. I need a bookkeeper for my glory. I need an administrator for my kingdom purposes. I need a parent. I need a student for my glory. That is our vocation. If you're wondering, why am I here? What's my purpose in life? Maybe I missed your career, but God didn't. And as he looks at you, he sees you fashioned for his kingdom purposes and he chooses and he calls and he appoints and he places in opportunities and spheres of influences a multitude of gifts, abilities, talents all to be used for his glory and his kingdom purposes. And we see that again in chapter in verse 3 here. Um, let, let's read verses 2 and 3 and you'll see that theme repeated again in verse 3. Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. Hey, uh, God, just one time out here before I go to the house of Jesse the Bethlehemite and appoint a new king, there is a current king and he's going to kill me if I do this. And so the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. 
and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So God reiterates that command. He gives instructions. Um, He's now traveling to this place, and, and he's about to say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. There's a lot of themes that we've already seen in 1 Samuel repeated here in chapter 16. You know, we saw there in chapter 15, the chapter we just came through last week, Saul's unwillingness to offer to the Lord all the plunder from the battle against the Amalekites. And he's saying, you know, God wants me to sacrifice all of this plunder, all this good stuff. I don't want to do that. I'll just give whatever is worthless and despised to the Lord. Hold back the good stuff for me. So we've seen Saul's unwillingness to sacrifice all that is good. And that's where then Samuel comes with that key verse of chapter 15 and verse 22. To obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. There's a, a real close connection between obedience and sacrifice. And this, this theme of, of sacrifice is really what he calls each of us to. Sacrificial living, sacrificial giving, sacrificial priorities and desires that as, as we contemplate those two choices between either living to please me or living to please God, we will make that sacrifice and say, all that I am, all that I have, my identity, my purposes, I put it in your hands. The whole point of those Old Testament sacrifices, it was not that God needed dead animals. It was not that God needed blood. There's nothing that God needs. He is fully sufficient in and of himself. Really, the sacrifices were this marriage of obedience and surrender and faith in him. And he's saying, hey, Israel, take the best of your flock. Take the best of your crops, the first fruits at harvest time. Bring those to me. It will be a sacrifice for you. You would much rather keep the choicest of your flocks and your herds for yourself. But I'm asking you to bring that whole offering into the storehouse of of the Lord and then see the blessing that comes as you take that step of faith and say, God, I I entrust all my possessions, all my dreams, my future to you. And really we saw Saul not willing to do that. He's looking at all this good stuff of Amalek. He's looking at this king Agag that he could kind of hold up as a trophy and say, hey, look at me, I'm the warrior king. And he's saying, I'm not going to sacrifice that good stuff to the Lord. I'll just give him whatever I don't want. Now we have Samuel being instructed, go, sacrifice, be faithful, obey, invite Jesse and his family to be a, bar, a part of that sacrifice. Even earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 13, we saw the story of Saul offering this unauthorized sacrifice. Samuel had given him very clear instructions a couple chapters earlier. Go to Gilgal, wait for seven days, I will come and offer the sacrifice, and then, he said, the Lord will show you what to do. And Saul waited those seven days looking at his wristwatch, and at exactly that seventh day when, it, when that second hand ticked over, he looked around and said, oh, there's no Samuel, I'll do it myself. And he disobeyed those instructions, offered the sacrifice, and the result was God's blessing withheld, God's entrusting the kingdom to, to Saul, pulled back, Saul now being rejected by the Lord. And instead of 
fearing the Lord and serving Him and obeying His voice, Saul took the path of rebelling against the commandment of the Lord. And that was exactly what Samuel had cautioned in chapter 12. So now we have the contrast to that as Samuel is, is listening, he's obeying. And, and today, we, we, many of us raised our hands and said, I would like God to show me what to do. In fact, that's not what God reiterates to Samuel. Go in and, and do the sacrifice, verse 3, and I will show you what to do. So there's a, there's a connection between that obedience, that sacrificial way of living, and then God being the one who ordains our steps. God being the one who shows us where we are to go. When you get up in the morning and you say, God, what do I do today? What are your plans and purposes for my life? Are you saying that with a heart that is yielded? With a heart that's saying, God, I'm here to listen and obey and follow? Or are you kind of more like Saul some days where he said, I'm just going to do my plan and then hope that God rubber stamps it. Hope that God kind of comes along and endorses those decisions that I've already made. But that's not the way it is with our God. If we will listen, if we will obey, if we'll offer to Him all that is good, hold nothing back, then when we open our eyes, we're going to see Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the, of the world, the sacrifice once and for all time, modeling to us, drawing us to that plan that God has for each of us to glorify God and to bring praise and honor to Him with all that we are. Thankfully, Samuel is an example of that obedience. And in verse 4 it says, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? You know, this is a representative of King Saul coming to our little town of Bethlehem. What's the problem? And so they're nervous. And Samuel says in verse 5, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So we're seeing another word here in chapter 16 that's related to sacrifice, this word consecrate. It means to set apart as unto the Lord. In Hebrew, it's kadas. That's when you take something that's ordinary and then you set it apart as an instrument to be used in worship, right? So if you're later in Israel's history when Solomon is building the temple, there are a lot of normal, ordinary, common things that are now consecrated and set apart as holy to be used to worship God, to be used in, in that ceremonial worship of the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth. Maybe you're an artisan. Maybe you're a potter. Maybe you can work with metal. And so you make a goblet or a cup. Uh, uh, you make a lamp stand. That was only normal as your hands were fashioning that. But when it's consecrated and set apart to be used to worship God, it now takes on a holy property because it's used in worship. It's used to glorify God. It's set apart to be used. So this is a different word than that word that we saw in chapter 15, that word haram in chapter 15, which is another setting apart, but it's uh, in, in the ESV it translates it devote or devote for destruction. That's where God says, this item is banned from ordinary use. Okay, so the, the, the word we're seeing here in chapter 16, consecrate, take something that's ordinary and set it apart to be used for worship. In chapter 15, it was 
a different word, also related to worship of God. But it's saying this item is banned from ordinary use, and it's to be given to God, not to be used, but to be destroyed, annihilated, burned up. This is what happened with the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Bring that offering, offer it to God. It's, it's no longer to be used as one of the, the sheep in your flock. You're to give it to God and to consecrate it to Him. And so again, that theme of things that are set apart, kept for God, that's what we're seeing here in chapter 16. You know, many of you earlier today, you raised your hand, you said, I would like to know what God's will is. And this word consecration is a big part of, of unlocking the key to that question. Romans 12 tells us, says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You know, you may have walked in the room today thinking I'm just an ordinary man, woman, boy, girl, young adult. But if you're a child of the king, Romans 12 says you are set apart. You are consecrated. You are made holy because of the blood of Jesus. You're not in the pattern of the world. You're not just for ordinary use. You're set apart for a special purpose, to be used to bring glory to Him, to be used as a living sacrifice, this ongoing expression of worship to glorify the King. And if you want to know what that specific daily plan is, then just stay in that function, consecrated, set apart, and day by day, He will be renewing your mind, transforming your thoughts. And you'll begin to discover and know what is that good, perfect, and pleasing will of God. It's something that he gradually brings about in our lives as we remain in that place, not of ordinary pattern of this world living, but in that consecrated, set-apart, sacrificial way. And we're getting glimpses of that in this Old Testament story. As Jesse and his sons consecrate themselves and they come to offer a sacrifice but really they're consecrating themselves as well they're coming and saying we are now setting apart ourselves for worship of the one true god you exist for god hope i hope you see that when you look in the mirror i hope you hear the truth of what god whispers over you as a son and daughter a son or daughter of the king Don't listen to the lies of the enemy saying you don't measure up. You're not good enough. Slapping that failure up in your face once again. Listen to the king of glory who looks at you and says, set apart for my kingdom purposes. You exist to bring glory to me. The next thing that happens once you've gotten a hold of that truth is it changes the way you begin to look at the people around you as well. You know, there's a pattern of this world way of looking at one another, and then there's a kingdom of God way of looking at others. We're going to see that here in this next paragraph, verse 6. So when they came, now the family of Jesse, for, for this act of sacrifice, joining with Samuel, Samuel looked on Eliab, the oldest, the firstborn, and he thought, 
surely the, the Lord's anointed is before him, me, before him, before Jesse. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is, this is probably the key verse of this chapter. Okay? That'd be a good one for you to write down on a note card, on a post-it note, text it to yourself, whatever you've got to do. This would be a great verse for you to work on memorizing this week. Because I think within this verse, there's a, a challenge to each one of us to really consider how do we judge the people around us? How do we look at them? Are we looking with God's eyes or kind of like Samuel, we're judging the book by the cover? And there's external features or this outward appearance that would either impress us or cause us to reject someone that maybe God would have a different perspective on as God looks at the heart. Are we seeing brothers and sisters in Christ as made in the image of God? Or is there a different set of criterion that we use? What about the lost around us? Do we look at them through eyes of compassion Do we see them as made in the image of God, needing to hear the good news of the gospel message? Or can we just walk past them without noticing at times? And so God challenges Samuel to begin to see through God's eyes, not to follow his gut instinct, but to submit to God's direct speech, to the leading of his spirit, to allow God to direct and guide in the choosing of the next king of Israel. What do you think Eliab was feeling like on this day? You know, his dad's like, hey, hey, Eliab, come here. The prophet's here to anoint the next king of Israel. Come on in. And Sam is like, oh, this guy is tall. He's good looking. He's a big guy. He, surely this must be the Lord's anointed. And all of a sudden, Samuel's face kind of sinks. And he starts looking down the line to the next younger brother. How do you think Eliab felt? Well, if you want to know, you can read ahead and in the next chapter, 17, you get, a, you, get some, you get a very good indication of how Eliab felt about this. He was not real happy. He was displeased over being overlooked. But we do get a glimpse into that thing that God saw when he saw his heart. There's jealousy. There's um, a warrior mentality that's not submitted to God. We're going to meet Eliab a little bit more next week in chapter 17 at the battle between David and Goliath. So then... then um, you know, Jesse's like, okay, well, son number one didn't pass the test. Let's, let's continue down the line. How many sons did Jesse have? He had seven plus one, okay? So there's eight total. David is, is number eight. But he goes on down the line in verse eight. Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons passed before Samuel. And then Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Kind of like, I'm pretty sure God led me to your house today, Jesse. Travel all the way to Bethlehem. This is all you got? And then almost as an afterthought, verse 11, Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And it's like, you know, I've got a lot of kids as well. I know how this goes. You know, it's not like you mean to overlook one, but you're like, you're counting. You're like, I think we got, oh, oh, <clears throat> there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. 
And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So what is David doing? You know, in, maybe in his dad's eyes, maybe in his brother's eyes, maybe even in Samuel's eyes, something insignificant. He's shepherding the flock. You know, he's just out there with the sheep. In fact, that, that kind of becomes a diminutive, uh, mudslinging phrase here to come in the story of David, where, you know, kind of like we've got these, these ways that we judge certain careers or occupations. You know, like, oh, you're a garbage man. That garbage man's probably a millionaire, right? Because, you know, that's a, that's a big boom in industry. I mean, we all pay HOA fees and everything to, to pay those garbage men a job that we would say is insignificant. Oh, you're probably just a farmer. That farmer is a hard-working person that needs to know stuff about veterinary medicine and crop rotations and fertilizer and soil conditions and, and the weather. And, man, there's a whole lot of knowledge that goes into that. And I think this occupation had that sort of a feel, like, oh, he's just out in the fields with the sheep. But what do you think God would be looking for on that LinkedIn profile for the next king of Israel? Don't you think this job description is exactly what he wants to see on the resume? This is a, this is a humble young man who's out there with his sleeves rolled up, leading sheep to good pasture, leading them to clean water, protecting them from danger that would come, wolves and bears, lions, grabbing them, it, it says coming up here in Samuel, grabbing them by the beard, you know, grab that, grab that lion by the mane and, and dispatch of it so that the sheep are protected. Uh, this is exactly the kind of leader that God looks for, even though man would overlook someone like this. This is what God is looking for. We see this in the New Testament as well. It's not just an Old Testament uh, job requirement. This is what God says of all the leaders of his people, New Testament and forward, 1 Peter 5.2. For elders in the church today, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And really, David has already in his early life in a job that maybe for him he couldn't connect the dots. He's like, God, why am I stuck out in the field doing this? And God's, God's seeing the end and the beginning all in one snapshot. He knows all of David's life before a single day comes to pass. And he's saying, no, David, just calm down. I've got you out in the field with the sheep for a purpose that you don't yet know, but I do. And there was a heart that was developing in David. There was a trust. There was a putting faith in the God of Israel. And he's going to need that coming up in the next chapter. And learning to see God be the one who fights the battles, the defender the provider, the protector, even developing a heart that can see when one sheep has wandered off and he needs to leave the 99 to go and rescue that one. Those characteristics and traits are being developed in this youngest, overlooked member of Jesse's family who's out shepherding the flock. And they send for him. And he comes in. Verse 12, he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. He had nothing about his stature, his physique. 
He's got a suntan because he's been out in the field. He's got some nice-looking eyes. And he was handsome. Okay? And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Seven of Jesse's eight sons passed by. This last son, out in the field, maybe overlooked until the very end of the story. What do you see when you look at the people around you? Do you see through God's eyes? Do you pray and say, God, help me to see the contents, not just the superficial, and then to treat them as such? So it's not just that you exist for the glory of God. Other people around you exist for the glory of God as well. And part of having God's heart is beginning to see through his eyes. This, uh, this word anoint, we got some explanation here in the text, but you know, there's this hollowed out ram's horn that Samuel has filled with oil, probably olive oil. And now he's coming and he's pouring this oil on David to symbolize that he's going to be the king. Now, maybe you like the medieval times, and, and you can picture what was it like if, for a king to knight someone. Take a sword as that person is kneeling down, touch them on each shoulder, right? This is a symbolic act like that. So when you see that word anoint, or there's a couple of, there's a Hebrew word in the Old Testament related to that, Messiah, okay, that has to do with that anointing as well, that kingship. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is Christ. Okay, so christened would be an English word related to that. All three of those words should bring to mind that picture of a king being anointed, uh, that, that oil that's poured out to designate that this is one set apart as a king for the Lord. And that's going to help us as we read the rest of our Bibles and see that, that theme of anointing and kingship and Messiah the Christ. Also, we're seeing here now the Spirit of the Lord being poured out on David. In the Old Testament, there, the Holy Spirit is present. It's not just, you know, we don't have to wait until Acts chapter 2 until the Holy Spirit shows up on the scene. The Holy Spirit has been at work within God's people since creation. You know, the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the waters. And now we're seeing, we saw Saul already with the Spirit coming upon him and prophesying. Now we're seeing that once again, the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon David, and it remains with him throughout his whole life. Often in the Old Testament, when the Holy Spirit works in and through a person, it's for a period of time, you know, where that, that uh, anointing or that filling or indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, that coming upon of the Holy Spirit, is for uh, an episode, but then it's withheld. Now if you read ahead to the minor prophets, the prophet Joel says that there's a new covenant coming. And in the last days, it says in Joel 2, also repeated in Acts 2 in the book of, on the day of Pentecost, it says, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. We're living in that era of church history right now where God's Holy Spirit is available to each of us. We're getting glimpses of that again back in the Old Testament. It's exciting to see God at work in this unfolding story of redemption. His plan for creation that's existed 
since he said back in Genesis 1 and 2, it is good, it is good each day of creation, it is good all the plant life, it is good all the animals, it is very good the creation of man in his image. And that God is working to redeem creation for his glory. So when we see the people that God has brought into our lives, let's see them also as existing for the glory of God. What do you do once you know who you are and you know God's mission for you and you're starting to understand how other people around you fit into God's mission to bring glory to himself? What happens when you have received that blessing? It it is a blessing to have God call you to himself. Say, I've chosen you. You're my daughter. You're my son. You're forgiven because of Jesus' finished work. What's the doing that comes as a part of that being, that status as a son or daughter of the king? What follows that blessing in your life? We're going to get a glimpse of that now as we finish out this chapter. Chapter 16, verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. This is another one of those tough passages, you know, because hopefully that kind of jumped out at you. You know, and your version may have a different phrase um, there in verse 14, and it's kind of repeated a few times. The ESV here says, a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented Saul. Um, there's other words that, you know, if you're, if you're using the NIV or the King James or the New King James, it might say an evil spirit from the Lord, a distressing spirit from the Lord. It might say tormented him, troubled him, terrorized him, I think the, uh, the um, NASB says. And that, that same phrase is repeated in 1 Samuel 18 and 19 as well of Saul. Uh, really? Uh, an evil spirit from the Lord? Does that make any sense? Okay, that's a tough, a tough uh, phrase to reckon with here in 1 Samuel 16. Um, the Hebrew word is just, it's a real short little simple word, ra'ah. It's bad. It's the opposite of good. What is good? How do you define good? 
You know, if you're taking an ethics class, they'll make you wrestle with that. And they'll try to kind of back you into a corner and then get you confused and distorted. I would say the definition of good, if you want to know the def- definition of good, look at God. He is good. He is good all the time. And all the time, He is good. Okay? Um, that, is, that is our ethical understanding of the good. It's God. If you want to get a picture of God, look at Jesus. If you want to know Jesus, go to His Word. And pray that the Holy Spirit illuminates who Jesus is to you so you can understand what the good is. In ethics, the good ends up being whatever a human wants. Okay? Unfortunately, the Bible tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Don't go after whatever your heart wants. It's going to lead you astray. Look to God for what is the good. And so what is, what is the absence of the good? What is the opposite of the good? That would be the bad, right? And so there, there are not two equal and powerful deities you know, in a celestial battle throughout all of time. That's a misconception. There's not like a, a demon on one shoulder and an angel on one shoulder, and you're trying to hear between the two. There is one creator God, maker of heaven and earth. And then there's this little piddly nothing called Satan, who is an adversary, he's a liar, He's been opposed to God and his purposes throughout all of time. But his power is nowhere, it's not even the same ballpark as the power of the good and faithful one. And it's not that Satan can operate autonomously. Okay? He, he can't, he can't like go up to God and be like, oh, oh yeah, by the way, God, I'm going to do this today. And God is over here saying, oh, I wish you wouldn't do that. Read the book of Job. Satan comes to God one day and there's this accusation, oh yeah, this Job, he only loves you and serves you, God, because you give him so much good stuff and you bless him. But if, I, if, if you let me at Job, it'll just be a, a moment in time until he turns his back on you and rejects you. And God says, oh really? All right. I give you permission, puny one, to go ahead and put Job to the test. It's not Satan an equal and powerful counterpart to God, coming to God and informing him, notifying him of what he's going to do. He's really coming to God and asking permission. And so even over the enemy of God, God is sovereign. God has power and dominion over him. I think, you know, this is a passage I wrestle with here in 1 Samuel 16, but I think that that bad, distressing, evil spirit, the torment that we see Saul going through as this story unfolds and in subsequent chapters. I think really the idea of the, the absence of light being darkness, the absence of good being evil, as God is now looking at Saul in judgment, he's saying, Saul, this is not the day that you rejected me. This has been a pattern since we met you in 1 Samuel, of not knowing the word of the Lord, of pursuing what is right in your own eyes, of turning your back time and again, and what looked like repentance was actually just you trying to save your own neck. You've never had a change of heart, and now God is, has judged him. And there is no repentant heart there with Saul. What we see here of this now evil spirit, this harmful spirit tormenting Saul, the, the anguish, the mental anguish that he has that's momentarily alleviated as David comes and plays that lyre, that harp. It doesn't really bring a heart change, though, does it? 
It's just a little band-aid on a, a sick heart wound that really Saul has been unwilling to yield to God and to repent and to turn. And so the, the torment that he is suffering is a part of God's judgment on him. It's not that God is orchestrating and moving evil spirits to do his bidding. And yet this is a challenging phrase that we wrestle with. We're seeing that God is in some way turning Saul over to these decisions, this path in his life that he's already made long ago. But, but really, that's not the central figure in the story, is it? This is a story about meeting David, the man after God's own heart. What is David doing in this context, this unfortunate, sad story of a king who was not submitted to God? What is David's purpose? We get a glimpse now from the mouth of one of Saul's own servants, some of those attributes that are true of David. I'd say some of those characteristics to God are not that impressive. But there's a few that really are, and really, especially that last phrase that, that is mentioned, the Lord is with him. And that's the key. Once you get a hold of the fact that you exist for the glory of God, that other people exist to glorify God, then as you begin to do the things that God has created your hands to do, whether it's playing a liar or using that skill that he's entrusted to you, God will use you to, to alleviate the suffering of others around you. God will use you to bring a blessing, even to those who are under judgment, to bring some reprieve, to bring some light. David, ironically, here in this story, is ministering to the man that God has anointed him to replace. I think it's also another part of God shaping David. I mean, he's going to need the memory of these sweet days of interaction with Saul in some of the stories that are to come when Saul, now as he fully gives into this evil and to this path opposed to the things of God, he's trying to pin David to the wall with his spear. He's hunting him down. But here in this story, it's left on that note of David ministering, bringing joy, not quite what the servants had promised Saul. They said, and you will be well. we still got a very sick heart in Saul. But his suffering will be alleviated to some measure. That unrepentant heart problem remains for Saul. And so the formula there that I, if you've got your bulletin notes, God's formula for joy. This is a great one. Those letters J-O-Y. If you get these priorities in line, you will experience joy. I think I'd be smiling at me because she already knows this one. So you put, you put the J first and the Y last, and you put the O right in the middle, right? What do they stand for? J, Jesus, others, you. And we tend to try to flip that around a lot of times where, you know, looking out for number one, thinking of yourself first, if you want to know why you exist, if you want to know God's mission and plan for you, put Jesus first. His glory. You exist for the greater glory of God. And then second, put others second. Look at the people around you and say, how has God gifted me to minister to, to be a blessing to the people I encounter? And then put yourself last. Put yourself in that final place and say, okay, it's not that your needs are insignificant or unimportant, but it's that you have trust and faith 
and the God who knows your needs before you even speak them, who clothes the lilies of the field, who knows when a sparrow falls, who takes the time to count how many hairs you have left on your head this morning. And if he knows about all that stuff, he's going to provide what you need for today. Bread, direction, he'll take care of you. Trust in him. That's the formula for joy. Jesus, others, and you. Can we stand together in prayer today? God, we do give you thanks and praise. We thank you for the kids joining with us today to study your word. It's exciting to see that next generation hungry and attentive to, to hear the God who speaks and tells us who we are and what we were created to be and do. And so today we pray that for the parents, for the grandparents, for the rest of the Christian adults here in this room, that we would be raising up that ne next generation of young people, of children, of teens, to know you and to serve you, to follow after you, that their hearts would not be led astray to the temptation of living for self or following some idol, pulled in directions that would lead them away from you, but that they would know you and follow after you. And for each of us, God, we need that childlike dependence and faith today, tomorrow, each day this week. We pray that, God, we would utterly trust in you, that we would be like David. Whatever vocation we're in, that, Lord, even if we're maybe alone and lonely and dissatisfied and unhappy, we would see how you are shaping us, how you're working within us, how you're working out all things for your glory and good purposes, that we would be faithful this week in the things that you've entrusted to us within our spheres of influence. Help us to see ourselves through your eyes, Lord, that we exist for your glory. Help us to see others, beginning with the household of faith, through your eyes, that as we look to brothers and sisters in Christ, we would see them as bearers of your image. And then as we go out into this world, that we would look with eyes of compassion, take those opportunities to minister, to alleviate suffering, to point to the good news of Jesus. We don't know who you've chosen. We don't know, as you look inside the contents of the hearts of men and women, who you are calling to yourself. And so this week we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would lead us to those divine appointments, that we would go where you call us to go, that we would live consecrated, set apart for worship of the one true King. And that we'd open our mouths and speak when you call us to speak. Help us to know your truth and proclaim your truth as we go. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.